Well, let's go back to Hosea. Hosea, and uh, this time we are in chapter 11. And uh, we're going through all the minor prophets under the title of the sermon series, Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And so far, we are still in the book of Hosea. We are almost finishing. We are in chapter 11. It's up to chapter 14, so we should soon be at the end. Uh, you've all by now known the plot. Uh, the plot is that Hosea is told by God to marry a promiscuous woman as a witness to Israel as he plays out what it means to marry someone who is not faithful. And she continues being unfaithful. He has children with her. He sends her away because of that. She suffers immensely because those men who were giving her something, obviously now that she is desperate, don't give her anything. And so she suffers, and in due season, uh, he goes back to pick her up and bring her. And it's God again who says to him, go and bring her back. And you can imagine the sense of uh, negative emotions that took place, not only in his own soul, but obviously in those around him who would have heard that. Well, God was simply applying that to his situation. It was a, a blow between the ears, so to speak, between the eyes, so that the people would say, so you mean that's what this is like in the spiritual realm? And yes, that's what it was like. And so from chapter 4 onwards, the Lord begins to open up those same difficulties that uh, uh, he's got a controversy with his people. They are stubbornly unrepentant in their ways of sin. Um, he describes the depth and grievousness of their stubborn sin. And we, last time, rest through three chapters, which was chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, seeing how God is talking about disciplining his people because of their idolatry, because of their sin. And what we have been doing as we've been going through this book is avoiding a mere historical study. We can say this is what God was saying through Hosea to the people of Israel so many thousands of years ago. And that's, yeah, it's a good study, but that's not why God has given us the Bible. God has given us the Bible so that he can speak to us today, so that we can apply those same Old Testament passages to ourselves. So what we have been saying is that uh, idolatry in the 21st century is fairly different from idolatry at the time Hosea was speaking. Whereas at the time Hosea was speaking, it essentially comprised wooden statues, marble statues, metallic statues, 
that people will be bowing down to and sometimes just extraordinarily huge trees and hills and mountains. They would be giving them the adoration that is due to God. Today, we, we idolize careers, we idolize human lovers, we idolize money, we idolize property, we idolize entertainers, we idolize entertainment. Those are the kind of things that take the center stage of our lives. We, we uh, give them a level of devotion that is only acceptable for God. But that's what we do. And then we also make them the, the basis of our sense of security. Our sense of security. You can't believe how individuals who claim to be Christians are still so insecure. They already have their jobs, and they've been in those jobs for a while, and they're still very insecure. And that's the reason why they are unable to even go to the place of worship. It's because, you see, if my job ends, I'm going to suffer to get another job. Who has told you your job is ending? No, but, but it, it, it can happen, you see. And, and so they, they, they are with job security as number one instead of my God has my life in his hands. So it's important as we are applying these uh, letters or books uh, or prophecies from um, Hosea all the way to Malachi to keep in mind that as we are applying it that it's, it's not about us bowing to a tree. It's about these idols that are now 21st century idols. Today we are looking at just one chapter, and that is uh, Hosea chapter 11 from verse 1 to verse 12, although I will proceed into chapter 12 and just the first verse. The, the main issue there, as you will notice from the title of the sermon, is God's love for his people. God's love for his people. Notice that in the previous chapter, God has been speaking in terms of I will punish, I will punish, I will punish because of your ongoing sinfulness, your stubborn idolatry. And as we end in chapter 11, it is as though God pauses for a moment and says, I want you to see how I am processing this punishing, disciplining my people. How, for me, if we could use um, human terms, how for me it is such an emotional experience. Now, we may argue that God has no emotions. The point is, he's wanting to relate to us at our level. And he begins with his own original love, for his people. That's where he begins. His original love for his people. 
verse 1 to verse 4. Verse 1 to verse 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But, there it is again, they did not know that I healed them. I laid them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became <clears throat> to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. You, you can't miss the, the, the sense of God's original love for the people of Israel here. He is saying that from the very beginning I, I treated them with love. When they were in Egypt and suffering I, I went there and called them out so that I can as it were walk with them and take them into the promised land. I did it out of love. I went to them in the midst of their utter suffering and called them out. He says, again using the picture of raising a child, <clears throat> that it's me who taught Ephraim to walk. It's me who, who did all the nursing of this child from the beginning when this little thing was still in its napkins and, and, and wetting its napkins and making the napkins dirty all the way to those stumbling movements to, to learn to walk. It was, it was me who was doing all that, feeding and nursing and so on. I had, as it were, put in my everything to, take, to make this child grow up and become mature. Yet, all along, Israel was rebellious. All along, Israel continued sacrificing to idols. And as we saw last week, the more love he gave, the more idols they made. The more he cared for them, uh, the, the more sinful they became. He also uses... Another picture here, when he says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. He contrasts that to uh, the yoke that is on their jaws. And often when farmers are putting a yoke on their animals, unless they've got some affectionate attitude towards the animals, it can be a very rough experience for them. They they, they put the wood on top, they tie chains or whatever else it might be that they need in order for these animals, for instance, to plow the ground. But he's saying, that's not the way I treated you. 
I treated you, I led you with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I was like one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I was like one who, who bows down in order to feed them. Again, picturing something of genuine love for the people of God. But sadly, there was the stubbornness. Isaiah captures something of this stubbornness in chapter 1. Let's just quickly go there to chapter 1 of Isaiah. The very first chapter, as he begins to portray something of the stubbornness of these people in their sin. Isaiah and chapter 1. Again, exactly the same way. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, and here it is, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offsprings of, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And friends, we can easily be like that whereby we forget that God has loved us. He has loved us in eternity, in his electing love. He has loved us on Calvary, in his redeeming love. He has loved us experientially, from the point of him reaching out to us in salvation all the way to the present day. He has loved us. An original love. And we can still be so hard-headed that we want our sin and nothing is going to stand in our way. And even when day by day Year by year, we are walking with the Lord in that stubbornness. And he is still treating us with love and kindness, as we've already noticed here. With cords of kindness and bands of love, we still take that for granted and continue in stubbornness of heart. God is saying it's the exact opposite. I'm acting in love. My people are not loving me back. 
they are not loving me back. As a result, he goes on to say, I will punish them. Verse 5 to verse 7. He goes back to that. It was there in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. As a result, I will punish them. He's back again at it. Listen to this. Verse 5 to verse 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. Okay, so in other words, I am not taking them back to where I got them from. We are not going back to ground zero, but I'm still going to punish them. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. He's just been saying, I love them. I have loved them. But because God is holy, God is, is God, he must still be at the center of our affections. And he must be there alone. Alone. The idolatry that was continuing finally brought him to the point where he says, I am handing you over to Assyria. Notice the stubbornness in this passage. At the end of verse 5, because they have refused to return to me. That's stubbornness. He's been speaking, he's been speaking, he's been speaking, and they just won't listen. They refuse to get back. Or, as he puts it in verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. Bent on turning away from me. If, if there's anything that is heartbreaking to, to human elders, human elders, we're not even talking about God now, human elders, it's exactly this. It's exactly this. When a person who, in coming into church, they, they professed repentance, they professed faith in Christ, they spoke in terms of the fact that I was living in sin, I was told about a savior. I repented of my sins. I've embraced the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you brought them in. And together you are singing God's praises. Together you are listening to sermons. Together you are in prayer meetings. And then, unbeknown to you, they have clutched onto an idol. Unbeknown to you, they've clutched onto the, an idol. And slowly but surely, you begin to go like this. Slowly but surely, because the idol is demanding their time, demanding their affection, demanding that they actually sin against the Lord, and so on. And, and you get to know about it. And obviously, human elders as you are, you move in. And you assume that once you say, hey, 
is what the Bible says, that the person will repent. After all, they're supposed to be God's children. And you discover that they have, to borrow an English term, dug in their hills. There is this refusal to heed counsel. They are bent on getting their own way. Long before you talk about a prayer meeting, or rather a, a members meeting, where you start talking about disciplinary cases, long before that, you've already had your sleepless nights. You've already shed your tears. You, you've already been brokenhearted together as an eldership. You've already been. And you say, now we have no choice. We have no choice. No choice. Because you cannot have individuals stubbornly bent on, refusing, and then you just say, let's just continue as it is, let's turn a blind eye. Because then God's judgment falls on the whole church. So, as I've said before, I want to repeat. It's not sinners who are disciplined in a church. It is stubborn sinners. It is those who refuse to return. Those who are bent on turning away. Those are the ones that are disciplined in this way or punished in this way. And here is God's own example to us. So the under-shepherds simply carry out what the chief shepherd himself would have done. But what I want us to notice as we proceed is the struggle in the shepherd's heart. The struggle in the human heart that God is capturing and he is extrapolating it so that we, we may understand something or at a human level of the, the, the mixture of emotion. That's taking place there. Look at uh, verse 8 down to verse 9. Verse 8 to verse 9. You can almost sense a, a brokenness of heart. A brokenness of heart. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And he says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. There's no way I'm going to extinguish you. Why? Because 
I love you. I love you. I really love you. And therefore, I cannot see you utterly destroyed. What a picture. What a picture. As I said, whether we think God has emotions or not, He is definitely coming to our level so that we can relate to Him when we are playing with sin, when we are playing with idols, and when finally disaster falls. It is not as though he is a butcher who's just chopping off the heads of cows and slaying them and turning them before long into rump steak and uh, T-bone steak and whatever, just with no feelings whatsoever. It's not like that. Or some medical personnel who have got so callous with people dying that it's like just figures. Okay? Getting home, yeah, 10 people died today. The following day, back to work. After all, people die, others get through this. So that. If you've ever watched, especially movies where they are, there's drama and bad people are being killed, have you noticed how when bad people are being killed, you, you quickly move on? You know, and you move on. There are no feelings, no emotions. And then when the main actor or his wife or child or something doesn't even get killed but it's a, a wound that is hanging between life and death. Have you noticed how even the music changes? And what they're trying to do is to say, yeah, yeah there are emotions here. There are emotions. You just can't move on. There are emotions. That's what God is doing here. He's saying, for everyone who is his child, who goes into the far country, there is that slow motion, that, that music that can produce tears out of a rock, if you understand what I mean. that music. In heaven itself, how can I? How can I? How can I? Adma and Zeboim, I'm almost certain none of you remembers that you've read these names in the Bible. They were among the cities of the plains where Sodom and Gomorrah were. So when Sodom and Gomorrah were reduced to ashes, they also were reduced to ashes. So when he's saying, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? It's like saying, how can I make you like Sodom? How can I treat you like Gomorrah? How? Reduce you to complete ashes. How? I can't. I can't. 
for I am God and not a man. You see, when a man is angry, he can actually kill you. You are his friend, yeah? but in the moment of anger, can pick up a bobojan and then afterwards, oh no, I've killed him. But God is not like that. God is still in control. And because of that, he's saying, I will not come in wrath. I won't come and finish you off. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. So what, what does God do? On one hand, he loves. He loves us. But on the other, we are stubbornly continuing in sin. In, we've idolized something. And that's what we are really living for. And he can't just come in and destroy us all together. He can't. So how does he deal with this matter? He, he, he comes with them. He comes to them to punish, but as we've been seeing, it is chastisement. He comes to, to discipline them so that they can come back to him. That's the way he resolves it. Look at verse 10 uh, to chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 10, chapter 12, verse 1. They shall go after the Lord... And then it says, he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children, notice, shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, which is where he will send them, so they will come back. And then it says, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And then he comes back to um, the situation as it currently stands. Okay? The situation now. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So the two tribes of Israel, the southern kingdom, is still intact at this moment. Later on, it will also go the same way. But it's still intact. But the northern kingdom, that is the one being referred to as Ephraim, is in sin. And he says, Ephraim feeds on the wind. In other words, they are not satisfied in their idolatry, but they are still in it. And pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. So, let's again just put that together. How does God relate to the situation? On the one hand, he is saying that he will punish them, but with a view to bring them back. Where they have gone in stubborn sin, they will pay for it. And brethren, I've been a Christian long enough to have seen that happen over and over 
and over and over again. I've never forgotten once talking to a Christian and saying, this is where you still want to go. Tell me, just give me, just, just one person you know, just one, who's gone that way without regretting it in the end. So just one. And the person said, I don't know anybody. And I said, do you honestly think you will be the first? Sadly, they still went. And sadly, they still paid for it. That's stubbornness. God is saying they will come back, but they will come back trembling. They will come back, but they will come back trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. That's the way they will come back. It's like the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians and chapter 3 about believers. In fact, even church leaders for that matter who are playing where angels fear to tread. He says they'll still get to heaven. After all, they are still saved. They'll get to heaven. But listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I begin from verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation, this is the foundation of Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work Will, be made mani will become manifest for the day, and that's the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So all our Christian labors are going to be put under this test, this, this judgment by the Lord himself. And then he says this, verse 14. If the work that anyone has built in the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So it will be praise the Lord, hallelujah. But listen to this. Verse 15. If anyone's work is bent up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. But only as through fire. In other words, it's like a person who has spent his life building a house and, and going out to South Africa to buy the, the household goods, you know, proper made out there and furnish his house and everything. And then one day he's sleeping. And he's woken up by the smell of smoke. His house has caught fire. And he does his best to finally open the doors and escape outside with burnings around his body. And then the whole thing has come crashing down. He himself is saved. 
but everything that he had lived for has been reduced to a rubble. And when you get close to him, he's even smelling smoke. Smelling smoke. Imagine arriving that way in heaven. Well, first of all, that's the way these people, when they were now restored after Babylonian captivity, they were now restored under the Persian uh, kingdom uh, back to, uh, to the promised land with, with hardly anything. Hardly anything. It, they were a, a, a sorry sight, a sad sight. It is said that when they tried to rebuild the temple after they finished it, those who had been there previously, who had seen the previous one, when they saw this new one, they just sat down and started crying, just weeping. Because it was a shadow, a scandal, compared to the previous magnificent edifice. Imagine, here you are, you've lived your Christian life, but because of idols of the heart, and sin that you've treasured, everything that you lived for is lost, spiritually speaking. And you arrive in heaven smelling smoke. Smelling smoke. You've survived. Your friends are rejoicing. You are trembling. And what they are saying to you is not congratulations or praise the Lord. They are saying, Mwapusuke. Yes. Because they can see. You are also you are trembling. You are saying, yeah. It was quempe. It was quempe. That's not the way to arrive, friends. No. In the light of the great and full salvation that we have in Christ procured for us on the cross. The, the, the fullness of the promises of God for us as we walk with him in what we call trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. In the light of all that, in the light of the Spirit who works within us, who in fact is already correcting us, saying, Iwe, where you are going, don't, don't, don't. That's going to, to cost you, don't. He's speaking to you on the inside. In the light of all the sermons that you are hearing, that are speaking to you, speaking to you, from Hosea, you still continue, still continue. And you pay for it in the end. And sometimes, yes, individuals do get restored. But very, very few, very few capture anything of their past glory. Very few. Very few. Most individuals, they are but a shadow of their former selves. A shadow, a sorry shadow. 
they come back trembling. God wants them back because his love is eternal. It's everlasting. But what a damage. What a damage. What a damage. Okay then, what are we learning from here? I think it's pretty straightforward. It is this. We have seen God's love for his people even when they stubbornly continue in sin. We've seen that. That's what this is all about. And what God is saying there is that Christian backsliding is something which, if we can picture at a human level, is like a wife who goes astray into adultery, into promiscuous living. It's like that. The emotion that is on that husband. Or, let's put it the other way around, a husband who goes into adulterous living. The emotion that is there on the wife. It's like that. That's what he's saying here. There is that difficulty to process. God's compassion will finally overcome his wrath. He will bring them back. He will bring you back. But oh, what a price. What a price. Therefore, don't go there. That's basically what the point is. Don't go there. Listen to God's word. Listen to God's word. Walk in his ways. Yes, you will never lose your salvation if you are a true child of God. You never lose it. But there's a price to be paid for sin. And God is saying, don't go there. You disturb a real loving relationship. Jealously guard your walk with the Lord. Keep him as number one in your life. And not that he should be number two, number three, number four. Uh -uh. He should be number one, number two, number three, number four. He should be alone on the throne. Keep him there to your dying day. Serve him only. Remember, he has loved you with an everlasting love. No one has loved you the way the Lord has loved you. No one. No one. Even that chap who's telling you, I love you, I love you, you know, forget those guys, I love you. Even that chap, hmm? young lady, Christ has loved you more. Try the chap. Tell him, get on that cross a few hours. Just a few hours. We'll nail you there. You won't die. Just nail you there for a few hours. You'll see how quickly he will go after your, gift, your friend. He'll abandon. Christ has done it all. He has died to show the extent of his love for you. Keep him as your all in all. Amen.